I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. Stop what you're doing. You're going to want to hear this show. If you're driving a car, just ease off ever so slightly that gas pedal. These next two series of shows are going to seem like a Hollywood feature film with one distinctive difference. They're real. We are about to take you, Washington, D.C., deep below the White House, directly into the President's nuclear-proof bunker on all days 9-11. Our guest today, Colonel Robert Darling, was there. Sitting beside him for 24 hours, Condoleezza Rice. Directly behind him, giving orders, Dick Cheney. On the phone, President George W. Bush. 9-11, folks, everybody remembers where they were that day. Colonel Robert Darling tells us when the big secure door slammed behind him, took him deep into that bunker, here's what happened. Was this indeed Dick Cheney's finest hour? It certainly was. Now, imagine big door opens, big door closes. I'm inside the bunker. There's members of the White House military office are all scrambling, answering phones. When I saw the vice president's military aide, he was an Air Force major, a good friend of mine. I said, Tom, I'm here to do airlift operations planning for the president. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, the heck with logistics. I need you to answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. I put a bag down. I walked over. Here's a console, a desk, a phone. It's ringing. I sat down. I picked it up. It was the first phone call that I received that day, right around 9.52 that morning. And I said, Major Darling, next thing you know, you heard this is the White House situation room upstairs in the White House. We have another hijacked plane 15 miles south of Pittsburgh inbound Washington, D.C. Stick around, folks. This is going to be an exciting, explosive show. It is the true story of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling deep below the White House in the president's secure bunker 24 hours, 9-11, right now on Brent Holland. you're joining us, we have a profound guest with us this afternoon. I'm going to go back almost 10 years, September 11th, and right away, you're keying in, 2001, 9-11, folks. I think, like the Kennedy assassination for this generation, everybody remembers where they were that day. Indeed, our guest today certainly remembers where he was because he was right inside the president's bunker. That's right, folks. Our guest today, Colonel Bob Darling was right there beside Vice President Dick Cheney and President George Bush, making all the decisions and implementing them to keep the country safe. Bob, I want to welcome you to the show, but I also want to thank you for your service that day because I know without folks like you at the helm, things would have been a lot worse 
as bad as they were. Thank you for joining us, my friend. Well, it's great to be with you, Brent. And uh, like I said, you know, it was my pleasure. Let's start off just a normal day, I guess, for you when you started your day. Can you take us? I'll take your listeners up to how I got to the White House and how that day began, if I may. Sure, please. I am a a U.S. Marine, retired as of 2007, but I was an attack helicopter pilot. I flew the AH-1W Super Cobra, and I joined the Marine Corps in 1987. I flew it in Desert Shield and then Desert Storm and again in Somalia. I was deployed with the 2-4 Marine Expeditionary Unit. I came back home. They made me a Cobra flight instructor. Uh, Eventually, I was a recruiter for the Marine Corps. And then in 1998, I put a package in, and I was selected to fly then-President Clinton around with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. This is the squadron that you see on TV with the the, the shiny green and, and white top helicopters that you see land and take off from the White House South Lawn. It was our job to fly the president worldwide. And wherever he goes, the United States president gets a logistics package that includes his helicopters, secure phones, and obviously the Secret Service hard cars. And that goes in advance of Air Force One in every location around the world. So when the president steps off Air Force One, we're fully rehearsed, in place, ready to go so he can execute his political agenda. And when he departs, we pick it all up and either bring it home or immediately move that logistics package to a different location somewhere else in advance of him around the world. Folks, we're speaking with Colonel Bob Darling this afternoon. He's going to take us right inside the White House bunker on 9-11. Easy way to get his book. And by the way, his book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11 Inside the White House. Easy way to get it as always, www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover. As always, that'll take you right to a place online where you can pick it up. Do order the book, not only for its historical value, but for its human drama as well. I mean, this is real-life history we're speaking with today, folks. I remember where I was, of course, on 9-11. I was in Montreal at the time, and they were saying when the towers were first attacked that they were going to be sending a lot of the survivors north to Montreal because of its close proximity. They were asking for blood, so we virtually shut the studio down and went to give blood that day while we were giving blood the tragedy of all tragedies happened and that was the towers fell and i'll let lieutenant colonel bob darling pick it up right there and as i said now i'm up uh, 1998 i'm flying president clinton around our squadron commanding officer approached me in october of 2000 and said i need a senior aviator to work in the white house military office that's actually working in the Eisenhower Executive Office building adjacent to the White House West Wing, and your job would be to do the logistics that I just described to you uh, earlier. So begrudgingly, I had to leave flying, and I went up there to be a part of the White House Military Office Airlift Operations Department. And inside this office, it's run by a full colonel. We had an Air Force colonel who was our boss at the time. And there's somebody from every branch of service. There's a Marine, myself, there's a, a Navy commander, Another Air Force Lieutenant Colonel It's represented by the Army. All branches of the U.S. military are represented there. And what we do is we rotate the assignments of logistics. So one week you're responsible for the movement of the President of the United States. You do all the planning with his staff. You you work with the Department of Defense to get all the assets in place. And when Air Force One departs, you clean it all up and move it to the next location. The week of September 11, 2001, I was the airlift operations officer responsible for then-President Bush's trip to Sarasota, Florida. 
I get everybody down there about four days prior to uh, the 11th. They rehearsed. They're all in place. President Bush departed the White House on September 10th. He was going down to discuss his education reform at the Emma E. Booker Elementary School in the morning of the 11th, and then he was supposed to return to Washington, D.C. all went off without a hitch. I woke up in the morning on September 11th. I was up in the White House about 8 o'clock. Uh, we, we huddled up, and we were going to talk about the day's events, what, you know, bringing back the gear and what future gear or future trips were up and coming for the president. When someone walked in our office and said, you need to turn on national news, either Fox or CNN, one of the, uh, the network news channels, the uh, small plane apparently has just struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We turned on CNN, I believe it was at the time, and we're all watching, and then we started speculating in the office there. Gee, that's a pretty big hole for such a, set, a small aircraft as a Cessna on such a clear blue day without a cloud in the sky. I wonder if you had a heart attack. How could the pilot have hit such a prominent landmark? We were all just, you know, bantering back and forth. When at around 9.03, we all saw United Airlines Flight 175 just careen into the South Tower at what looked like full power. And we knew in the White House military office, airlift ops department, that we had a full-blown terrorist attack unfolding right before our eyes in lower Manhattan, New York City. The, day, the day's events then changed. Instead of doing uh, pre-planning for presidential trips, our Air Force boss came in the room, said, get off the phone, stop what you're doing, let's get ready for high-level White House designated missions. If the Federal Emergency Management Agency is contacted and they want to move either doctors, nurses, first responders, medical supplies, relief supplies of any sort to New York area. We're going to make it a White House priority mission. That means they get all the Air Force assets immediately, and we're going to start moving relief supplies to New York. And as we're doing that, and as we're working through that, 9.30 in the morning now, an airliner overflies the White House, literally so low that it drowned us out in our conversations. Oh, my God. Uh, one of the guys ran to the window and said, I just saw an airliner in a hard left-hand turn heading west. Now, let me describe the White House. As you know, it's, it's prohibited airspace. Mm -hmm. uh, any VFR section has got a big P-56 on it for prohibited airspace 56. No one overflies the White House, let alone this huge airliner that drowned us out. A few minutes later, right around 9.38, breaking news, there's been a, an explosion and fire reported over at the Pentagon. We really knew, uh, we, we started to assume that that airliner that just overflew the White House was, in fact, the same air, airliner that just struck the Pentagon. Now, we, we didn't just have a terrorist attack unfolding in New York, but we had a terrorist attack happening right here in Washington, D.C. All the phones were ringing. Now we're, we're, we're trying to scramble. Uh, what's going on? Everybody wants to know what's happening at the Pentagon. When at 9.45, all the intercom systems blared to life in the White House and the executive office building, evacuate the White House, evacuate the White House, secure your spaces, and everybody, uh, you know, go to the rallying points, take a muster, but the White House and, and the Eisenhower building are to be officially evacuated. And that hasn't happened since, you know, the War of 1812 against the British. Now, when Dolly Madison was running out the back door with, with you know, Prince of George Washington. And here we are. We did a full-blown evacuation in the White House in the Eisenhower building. I grabbed my boss. He told us, uh, that's it. We're, we're done for the day. Secure your spaces. And I grabbed Colonel Irwin, and I said, boss, I can't leave. 
The president is in Sarasota. Washington, D.C. is now under attack. He's not going to be able to come back to Washington. Wherever he goes, he's going to need his logistics package. He's going to need his hard cars, his helicopters, his secure phones. He's going to need uh, you know, any type of whatever person or equipment he wants uh, brought to him. I need to stay. He said, great, grab the planning kit, go on down inside the White House bunker. We know it as the President's Emergency Operations Center. It's beneath the White House. His exact location, you know, we don't talk about the capabilities of the room. We don't talk about, but it's a hardened facility where we can bring the commander-in-chief and his family in times of catastrophic events such as, as 9-11. And out the door, I went. I, I headed out of the Eisenhower building on my way over towards the West Wing to get inside the White House. Folks, www.brenthollandshow.com. Get this book. I'm at the edge of my seat. The book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. And our guest today and its author, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, Bob Darling. Folks, he was right there during 9-11 inside the President's Secure Bunker. And he's going to tell us a few of the things and break down some of the crazy myths that have been floating around since 9-11, like the Americans were involved in their own catastrophe. And that's what I want to get to now, Bob. Can you take us into the bunker? And was this indeed Dick Cheney's finest hour? It certainly was. Now, I imagine big door opens, big door closes. I'm inside the bunker. As the members of the White House military office are all scrambling, answering phones, when I saw the vice president's military aide, he was an Air Force major, a good friend of mine, I said, Tom, I'm here to do airlift operations planning for the president. I'll stay out of your way. He said, Bob, the heck with logistics. I need you to answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. I put a bag down. I walked over. Here's a console, a desk, a phone. It's ringing. I sat down. I picked it up. It was the first phone call that I received that day, right around 9.52 that morning. I said, Major Darling, next thing you know, you heard this is the White House Situation Room upstairs in the White House. We have another hijacked plane 15 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C. And, well, you're going to have to hold on. I turned to pass that information up the chain of command to the military aide, and then eventually he would take it up to the vice president. When, lo and behold, Vice President Cheney was a foot away from me going, Major, what do you got? Now, everyone is coming into the room now, Brent, if you can imagine. I saw his wife, Lynn, Dr. Rice, who was the National Security Advisor at the time, her deputy, Stephen Hadley. All the other staffers now are, are piling into the bunker complex, coming over to my console, and I'm telling the vice president that we have a hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh. He turns, and now the speaker boxes on the wall are chirping to life, and the first person he reaches out to is... Rick from the FAA, the Herndon Command Center that we have in, in Herndon, Virginia, for the FAA. Rick, can you confirm somewhere south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we have another hijacked plane inbound? Mr. Vice President, stand by. We're checking. We're checking. They came back and said, that aircraft is not talking on the radio. It's not squawking its proper transponder code. It's way off course. Mr. Vice President, that's a hijacked plane. He then turned and said, Don, are you up? He was looking for his friend, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. He was not on a net. He was actually outside in the parking lot over at the Pentagon assisting with the triage and the wounded as the first responders obviously were, uh, were trying to put out the fire over at the Pentagon. When they came back and said, Mr. Vice President, this is a National Military Command Center over in the Pentagon. How can we help you, sir? All eyes were on the Vice President. I fully expected him to ask more questions. Instead, his first response was, I want two F-15s. I want them at an Otis Air National Guard base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this aircraft down. 
I'm still holding on to the receiver, and we just ordered our fighters airborne to intercept United Flight 93. Oh, my God. Um, the tension in the room. You're just speaking about what was going on, and I can feel the pressure, the tension, the split-second decisions that have to be made about life and death. Folks, the book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. That's right. He's taking us right into the President's Bunker on 9-11. And that person is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling. He's our guest today. www.brenthollandshow.com. As always, click on that book cover. Order this book. Order this book because it is in a historical document as well as is it going to bust down a lot of those crazy myths. This is real life drama, folks. This is what took place. Everybody remembers where they were on 9-11. I just described where I was giving blood. This is what was going on behind the scenes to keep everybody safe. Now, you know, here in Canada, the planes had been grounded by that point. We were starting to take people into our homes. That was what was happening in Canada. This is what was happening at the Action Center, right there below the White House. Going to turn it back over to Mr. Darling because I'm on the edge of my seat, Bob. This is incredible. Well, Brent, it gets even busier from here. We heard the F-15s reported supersonic over Long Island, New York. They were five minutes out from United Flight 93. They wanted to be weapons confirmed to engage. You are weapons free to engage. As soon as they have a lock on it, they are cleared hot. They can shoot it down. This is about 10.02 that morning. We heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh, no survivors. The air was sucked clean out of the bunker. All of us, there was about 20 of us in there that day. All eyes were on the vice president. We just thought by on orders of the vice president to the military that our F-15s, in fact, had shot Flight 93 out of the sky. It was You could have heard a pin drop. The vice president paused. He looked up. He looked down and he spun right around and he walked right over to me and said, for the congressional inquiry, state your full name. Mr. Vice President, from Robert Joseph Darling, my name is Robert Joseph Darling. He said, from, from Darling, Robert Joseph Darling, to, to myself, the Vice President, to the National Military Command Center, we just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the President of the United States. And then he walked out of the room to the executive side and now everybody was scrambling to try to reach the President who was now on Air Force One just getting airborne out of Sarasota, Florida, when the two then uh, were speaking on the phone. They, the minute they got the president on the phone, he instituted two classified programs. One was continuity of presidency and the other was continuity of government. Essentially, the details we don't talk about, but essentially the presidency is the president, the vice president, and the White House or, or the congressional speaker of the House. Uh, can no longer be in the same geographical lo uh, location. They need to spread out so our executive branch survives. The succession of the presidency will survive. Then the continuity of government is our three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive branch. The principles of those agencies need to go to their hardened facilities. So no matter what happens in America, our government won't de be decapitated and our presidency will always survive. President Bush instituted those two programs and then they had what they call an air threat conference. They had the Bob, could I just interrupt you for a second? Did you say that those two F-15s took out that flight? They did for a few minutes. And oh, I see. I, okay. I, I didn't clarify that. I said they did. A few minutes later, we heard, I totally missed this. The F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. That aircraft was actually down by the passengers on board Flight 93. It was Todd Beamer and the other passengers right. that fought against those terrorists. 
and in so doing lost their lives in the struggle. But that was the first battle against radical Islam, and those are the heroes of the very first battle. And I'm, I'm sorry, through my own excitement, I jumped over that piece of information. No, I just but wanted to clarify mean, it because a lot of people say that they actually shot them down. And when you said that, I thought, oh, oh my God. So, okay, thank no, you for we, that. We did not. Now, it's very important that your listeners know that we did not shoot Flight 93 down. The order was given. It would not have made it to Washington, D.C., that's for certain. But we did not engage that aircraft. It was, in fact, the passengers on board. Okay. Let's go back into the secure bunker. Folks, our guest today, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. He's written a book called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. 9-11, that's what we're talking about. All those split-second decision-making aspects of what was taking place that day. This was unprecedented, by the way, folks. There was no template to engage in and say, okay, we follow from A to B to C to D. They were going from A to F to G and then back to A again and all over the place. Bob was just telling us how they had to keep the president and the vice president separate for continuity of government. I'm going to go back to Robert Darling right now, who's the author of the book. 24 hours inside the president's bunker and he's our guest today and i am just mesmerized the other thing that was really unprecedented was they finally at around 10 15 now secretary rumsfeld's on the phone they're on the speaker boxes they're all talking to the president of the united states we just got past the flight 93 incident where in fact we we thought we shot it down and in fact we didn't shoot it down um and now the president is on the phone for the first time and secretary rumsfeld makes a recommendation to the president that we move we move our strategic nuclear forces from DEFCON 4, Defense Condition 4, da- down to DEFCON 3, which is actually a higher state of readiness. And that is to get our military members all the way around the world back to work. Whenever we raise our threat level or, or increase our readiness, everybody's got a playbook. The Air Force does, they load bombers, submarines die, the Navy gets out of port, the Marines mount out. Everything happens when you change a condition, a readiness condition like that. Secretary Rumsfeld recommended it to the President. He accepted, that's a great idea, move our strategic nuclear forces to DEFCON 3 and have them stand by for DEFCON 2. Now, Dr. Rice, the National Security Advisor, was sitting to my right. She grabbed my arm and said, Major, we haven't been to DEFCON 2 since the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962. That's right. Here we are, about ready to go. Worldwide, DEFCON 3, standby, DEFCON 2. And the vice president interrupted her and said, Condi, make it happen. Just like you can imagine, Brent, she reached over, she grabbed the red phone, and she calls over to the Pentagon National Military Command Center by executive order of the President of the United States to move our strategic nuclear forces to DEFCON 3, have them standby, DEFCON 2. The Pentagon calls out to Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, NORAD, uh, North American uh, Aerospace Command, and repeats the order, and then NORAD calls out to all the four-star combatant commands. So CENTCOM, PACOM, Atlantic Command, uh, Pacific Command, European Command, all of our four-star combatant commanders around the world are now saying they're DEFCON 3, standing by DEFCON 2. Bob, can I interrupt you again? You were saying it's a pivotal moment. Does NATO go on alert as well when that happens? 
I think NATO does go. I, I, I'm, I'm not certain, but we are embedded with NATO throughout right. Europe. So whenever the European command goes to the higher state of readiness, I think our NATO partners are automatically a part of that. I just want to let folks know Canada was already on alert as well. We were escorting planes with our own F-15s at that time. I'm sorry, Bob. No, and, I, and, I, and good. Slow me down and stop me for, for those things. It's important. And, you know, why was that moment in, in our history so important? That was the time that the United States finally went from a defensive posture to an offensive posture. Right around 10:15 that day, we were no longer taking body blows. We are now leaning forward. We are getting our military in action. We are clearing the skies. The president was fully up on Air Force One and acting as commander-in-chief. He and the vice president then, along with the secretary of defense, we're, we're moving our nation forward to defend America. This is an incredible story, folks. It is a true story, an absolutely true story. And we are getting an insider's view of what took place, all those decisions inside the White House on 9-11. Doesn't get any more real than this. Our guest today, very brave man, and thank goodness there was men of this fortitude there that day. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling is our guest, and he's the author of a book called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, you're going to want to get this book without question. Get a whole pile of them. Christmas is coming up. It's well worth it. It's going to be an incredible story, an incredible read. It is a true story. www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Get this book. Get this book. Bob, would you like to continue? Sure, Brent, I'd be happy to. From the remainder of the day now, we have the president on the phone. As a matter of fact, let me, let me take you down to about 1028 that morning. We just got word at, at 959, I believe it was, that the, in fact, the South Tower had just collapsed. They had the president on the phone. They told the president, uh, this is the vice president talking to the president, that it's our best guess that we had 20,000 dead Americans at that point. Yeah. We had not spoken to Giuliani. There was no report for FEMA. There was nothing coming out of New York. That was pure speculation of someone yelling out, Mr. Vice President, on any given day, 50,000 people work in those towers or in and around lower Manhattan. And with the tower on the ground, 110 stories now laying on the ground, we, our best guess is we have 20,000 dead Americans. At 1028, when the North Tower collapsed, they again got the president on the phone and told them that it was our best guess that we had at least 40,000 dead Americans in New York. Coming up right away, part two of this amazing story. Deep below the White House in the President's Bunker, Colonel Robert Darling continues this story. Those decisions were coming fast and furious, the information flooding in constantly, constantly. As you know, we were in constant threat of another attack. There were rumors abound that there was actually a nuclear weapon in New York. We continue today, Lieutenant Robert Darling. He was there, folks, 9-11, deep below the White House in the President's nuclear-proof secure bunker. Sitting directly beside him for 24 hours, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Directly behind him giving orders, none other than Vice President Dick Cheney. That's right, folks. It was in lockdown, don't forget. The United States was under imminent attack. Dick Cheney rose to the occasion. He shone that day. Another person that rose to the occasion? Dr. Condoleezza Rice, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling. Was there anybody else you felt, Sean, that rose to the situation that was at hand? You know, I talk in the book also about Dr. Rice, someone as powerful mm. as she is. 
she was incredible because she took a step back. She let the military members in the room run the military operation. She stood behind me most of the time. And when she could interject or needed to interject herself, she would. But she was confident in her, in her own abilities to let the military do what they're trained to do. And believe me, uh, a great leader knows when to lead and also knows when to take a step back. And she took a step back initially and then ultimately throughout the day, she was in charge of bringing all the actionable intelligence from all the agencies into the White House for when the president arrived at 6.30 that, that evening. She was ready. She's the one who met him at the airplane, and she's the one who escorted him down to the bunker. I think she was just an incredible presence to have in the bunker that day. She was the right person to assist all of us, powerful as she is. Ease off the gas pedal, stop what you're doing, put the coffee on, put the tea on, Listen to this show, Real World History, something you will not get on any other radio show or mainstream radio. Someone who is directly inside the White House nuclear-proof secure bunker below the White House. Our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, tells us what took place that day, right now on Brent Holland. incredible story folks it is a true story an absolutely true story and we are getting an insider's view of what took place all those decisions inside the White House on 9-11 doesn't get any more real than this our guest today very brave man and thank goodness there was men of this fortitude there that day Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling is our guest and he's the author of a book called 24 hours Inside the President's Bunker, you're going to want to get this book, without question. Get a whole pile of them. Christmas is coming up. It's well worth it. It's going to be an incredible story, an incredible read. It is a true story. www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Get this book. Get this book. Bob, would you like to continue? Sure, Brent, I'd be happy to. For the remainder of the day now, we have the president on the phone. As a matter of fact, let me, let me take you down to about 1028 that morning. We just got word at, at 959, I believe it was, that the, in fact, the South Tower had just collapsed. They had the president on the phone. They told the president, uh, this is the vice president talking to the president, that it's our best guess that we had 20,000 dead Americans at that point. Okay. We had not spoken to Giuliani. There was no report for FEMA. There was nothing coming out of New York that was pure speculation of someone yelling out, Mr. Vice President, on any given day, 50,000 people work in those towers or in and around lower Manhattan. 
And with the tower on the ground, 110 stories now laying on the ground, we our best guess is we have 20,000 dead Americans. At 1028, when the North Tower collapsed, they again got the president on the phone and told them that it was our best guess that we had at least 40,000 dead Americans in New York. Yeah, I remember that. They were supposed to be bringing, prior to this, a lot of survivors up north to Canada. That's why we went down to give blood, and they were preparing all the hospitals, clearing out beds, etc., for the catastrophe. Oh, my God, what a day. Are you married, Bob? Were you able to get in touch with loved ones yourself? I am married, and at the time, I had two boys. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're older now, but they were seven and four. I spoke to my wife quickly that morning and said, don't worry about me. I'm in the safest place possible. I'm really busy. I got to go. And the minute I hung up, then Dr. Rice ended up saying, that's a great idea. And then she called her family uh, somewhere down in Mississippi. But we got the word out to our families that we were in full operational mode and we were fine. And through the wives network, she was out taking care of our kids and make sure that they all got home and you know, they were all taking care of each other. I spent a full almost 24 hours in the bunker. The rest of the day was clearing the skies and getting the cabinet-level officials home. Uh, the president wanted his 8 o'clock in the morning on September 12th. He was going to have an emergency cabinet meeting. He wanted his cabinet around him, every single member of that cabinet. And that was our focus for the second half of the day was to get the Air Force to bring all those members uh, back home. And I got home about 24 hours later, about 11 o'clock the next morning when I came through the door for the first time and, and had an opportunity to uh, see my wife and, and my kids. Does the Situation Room, I guess they're working in tandem with all the agencies from around the world. Were there rumors flying around as they were here in Canada? Because I remember our Canadian Air Force had forced a plane to land, and as it turned out, it was just a passenger plane. It was just a miscommunication. They forced them to land in Toronto. But then we heard a rumor that some box cutters were found on a plane that was in Toronto, hidden under a seat. And all these rumors were flying around that there was more planes in the air that could attack Chicago, Los Angeles. I suspect all those things were coming into the Situation Room en masse and all at once. How does that, because again, there was no template happening, how does that information get discerned, get analyzed in those split seconds? That's a great question, and we were chasing airliners around all day long, just as you described. You know, we have 4,500 commercial aviation airplanes in the air that morning. Mm -hmm. By the time they ordered, the Vice President ordered clear of the skies, uh, with Secretary Mineta, we were down to about 2,000-plus airliners. And, and those, air, those airline pilots, they own the 300 people that are sitting behind them. So naturally, if they don't want to land in Kansas, they would rather make it to Nevada or somewhere else. They were trying to talk to their U.S. Air Base, or American Airlines Base, United Base, and we assumed if they were not ex complying exactly with their land instructions, that they were under some form of duress, and we were scrambling fighters to chase them down to see why they weren't complying. Uh, so there was a myriad of reasons going on. Maybe some of them wanted to get somewhere else because there's a, there's a better hub, or if I can make it there, I can get fuel. And, you know, they don't know the situation that's happening outside the aircraft, and we assume that they had, you know, duress inside the aircraft. So there was a lot of that going on. At one point, we were looking for 10 separate airliners, and then we slowly start scratching them off as they became accountable. And once we got word that they were safely on the ground somewhere without incident, 
uh, we would write them off the list. You know, you had mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis before, and folks, for those of you that weren't around during those days, and I was just a kid myself, October 1962, the Russians, the Soviet Union, it was the Cold War, folks, had decided to put offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba. And now you got to remember, this is just a few years after the revolution and Castro took over. President Kennedy saw spy plane photographs of those missiles and told the Soviets he wanted them out. They refused. And thus, we embarked on the scariest, I would say, the closest we've ever come to a nuclear confrontation, nuclear holocaust. Ted Sorensen, I spoke with Ted Sorensen, as fans of this show know, was on this show. Ted Sorensen, of course, was JFK's speechwriter. More than that, he was JFK's top eight. He was the fellow that wrote the letter to get Khrushchev to back down, and he takes us through that whole process, the missile crisis. And, you know, this is just another parallel to that, and thank God once again, we had men of the fortitude of a Ted Sorensen, President Kennedy, President Bush, and boy, I'm going to get some criticism over that, and Mr. Dick Cheney that day, and of course, our author today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling, inside the decision-making areas, so that this country... And the United States would remain safe because it could have been a lot worse. As bad as it was, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. The decision-making, I'd like to go back to that because a lot of the students that are listening now, this is the template I want to give them how to get the information in and then how to define that information and make the correct decision or what at least you believe the correct decision is in a matter of seconds. Were you giving any advice to anybody at the time or just following orders? How did that work for you? Well, I was receiving all the information from the upstairs situation room and it was being filtered down to my desk now I in the PDOC. And then I would, I would turn and give it directly to the vice president. I, I will have to say this, you know, normally the White House chain of command is, is probably the most vertical chain of command you're ever going to find. It's got to go through everybody and then after a million questions, if it's worthy of the White House chief of staff and above, then it gets filtered up that way. That day, if you were a Lance Corporal or a private in the military, you could have spoken directly with the President of the United States. If you had some information and you got it into the White House, it was going to be vetted at the highest levels of our government. It was really Cheney, and, I, and you mentioned his finest moment. Yes, it was Cheney who was a congressman, a White House chief of staff for President Ford, a Secretary of Defense, and now Vice President of the United States. His experience gave him so much um, visibility and insight into our country's emergency action procedures, for example, that when information reached him, he knew what assets and what people were in place to handle this crisis the best. And President Bush could have had a better right-hand man in the White House that day than Vice President Cheney. He was very knowledgeable, very cool under fire, and, and just so impressive on so many different levels. Bob, what are some of the myths surrounding 9-11 that just make you crazy? First of all, I want to say this one myth. It's American Airlines Flight 77, the one that struck the Pentagon. Yes, it was sir. not the aircraft that overflew the White House that day, believe it or not. The aircraft that overflew the White House was the National Airborne Operations Center. It was actually a command and control aircraft owned by the United States Air Force. They were doing an exercise that day, and for whatever reason, when it was scrambled, exercise terminated, and they probably were trying to send that aircraft south to be close to Air Force One in Florida. For whatever reason, it flew directly over the White House. Uh, that, so those two planes 
were not the ones that we, you know, there were there were separate aircraft actually. So one overflew the White House at 9:30, and and American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon was a completely separate aircraft. Those two had nothing to do with each other. There was, um, we did not shoot down Flight 93 that day, though the order was given to shoot it down. The F-15s were en route, but it, we did not shoot it down. Uh, it was the passengers on board. There is no conspiracy there. There was no missing missile off the rail. There's no one told to be hush-hush. It just didn't happen. Uh, it, what we were uh, going to shoot it down, obviously, when you have three aircraft into three targets, this fourth one now heading to Washington, D.C., as tragic as that would have been, the minute those terrorists overtook that aircraft, it was essentially a weapon of war. It was a 150-ton Tomahawk cruise missile heading for Washington. And as tragic as it is, the right course of action would have been to terminate that attack. But thank God, instead of the passengers being victims, they rallied together, and we had a plane full of heroes rather than a, a plane full of victims. And the Yes, sir. Uh, as far as New York, you know, some of the conspiracy theories you hear up there, uh, you know, they just don't exist. There was the U.S. government, uh, I tell you what, they were probably in some ways could have been, there was some negligence probably in handling the intelligence up to that day, but we surely didn't have anything to do with that day. That's, again, my personal professional opinion. I tend to agree with you too. Not this one, folks. I don't think there was a conspiracy at all. Once again, we're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. I was only supposed to keep him for 20 minutes, but he's just too good. I mean, this story is... It is so essential for us to learn from this, none better than somebody that was right there inside the bunker that day, right beside Vice President Dick Cheney. And indeed, I think it was Dick Cheney's finest hour. The book is called 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker. 9-11 we're discussing today. All those decisions. Try and imagine how much information was just flooding, flooding into that bunker that day. And you have to make a split-second decision in order to save lives. As Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling was just telling us, Mr. Cheney had to make a split-second decision whether to shoot that plane down. He did give the order, but the passengers overtook it. They are now heroes indeed, without question. Do you feel that the truthers that were out there, the, the truthers folks, I call them that, because they believe 9-11 was a conspiracy, that it was just the military, quote-unquote, industrial complex, again, trying to start a war to fund themselves. Have you ever confronted anybody about that? Has anybody ever come up to you and said you're full of poop and this is what really took place? Yeah, a few people have. Matter of fact, close friends of mine actually came up and really, despite me telling them the same story I'm telling you, they have their own doubts. They'll, they'll latch on to a small piece of information and that's it. Somebody will say to them, hey, there was no, uh, there was no airline seats at the Pentagon. How come? And they're going to say, well, it, it must have been a missile. It must have been this. Well, they would just do their homework, actually talk to a first responder there they know that when an airplane goes into a building at over 500 miles an hour, those wings fold up and, and things get disintegrated uh, rather rapidly, especially under jet fuel. And they would have realized that there were aircraft parts, there were pieces, there were seats, there were all those things, but they just want to latch on to something somebody said, and therefore it must be true. So even despite being there at, at the helm and, and between the National Command Authority, I still have naysayers say, I'm not convinced. Is there anybody inside the bunker whose decisions you were disappointed with or their lack of decision-making? 
Well, in my book, too, uh, I'll talk about the, there were some com uh, communication glitches. There were some problems, actually, with uh, our communication, the bunker's communication with Air Force One. And I think something that, as highly practiced and sophisticated as the White House Communication Agency, with all those folks, those Americans, uh, now on the cell phones, trying to use the phone, trying to get word to loved ones, we actually overloaded the system a few different times, and the vice president himself was cut off with Air Force One. We did have some problems. With um, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld being out in the parking lot doing triage for the wounded over at the Pentagon, as admirable as that is, uh, that was not his appointed place of duty. His appointed place of duty was to be at the helm of the National Military Command Center early that day. He could have reached out to the president, and they could have spoke as a member of the National Command Authority, the only other member besides the president. It was his job to be uh, at the helm, not unfortunately out helping with the first responders. Uh, like I said, the human side of me says good on him. The operational side of me says that's not where you belong. So there were there were some some folks that uh, I don't think performed as well as others. Besides Vice President Dick Cheney inside the bunker that day, was there anybody else you felt, Sean, that rose to the situation that was at hand? You know, I talk in the book also about Dr. Rice, someone as powerful mm. as she is. She was incredible because she took a step back. She let the military members in the room run the military operation. She stood behind me most of the time. And when she could interject or needed to interject herself, she would. But she was confident in her, in her own abilities to let the military do what they're trained to do. And believe me, uh, a great leader knows when to lead and also knows when to take a step back. And she took a step back initially, and then ultimately throughout the day, she was in charge of bringing all the actionable intelligence from all the agencies into the White House for when the president arrived at 6.30 that, that evening. She was ready. She's the one who met him at the airplane, and she's the one who escorted him down to the bunker. I think she was in, just an incredible presence to have in the bunker that day. She was the right person to assist all of us, powerful as she is. The book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, our guest and its author today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. And thank goodness, I'll say it again, for folks like that, that day, you know, it divine providence, I'll leave it up to you to decide, but thank goodness those people were in the places that they were to make those decisions. It would have been completely worse if those folks weren't there making those split-second decisions. www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover, as always, folks. That'll take you right to a place where you can order this book online. As I said previously, Christmas is coming. I can't think of a better gift to give somebody than actual history of that day. This is something that can be passed down forever from generation to generation in the same way that people lived through Pearl Harbor, in the same way that people lived through the Kennedy assassination. That is real living history. That's what this show is all about. I've only got a couple of more questions and I really do thank you for staying longer, my friend. The question is lessons learned. I've talked to military people before and there's something that is different between NATO allies and I would say the other folks uh, that are in the military and that is that we do something called lessons learned after every mission. And I suspect you did something similar. What were the lessons that uh, were learned? We really did. You know, I went to work uh, the next day. Uh, I was up there at uh, September 12th, and right away they started looking at what went well and what didn't go well. And one of the things that did not go well in the eyes of the vice president or, or the executive branch was the communication that I talked to you about before. That, mm. that did not go well. 
um, no, the military emergency actions they were very pleased at. We got all the principles where they needed to go. The military obviously is a, a well-oiled machine. They practice things over and over again. They don't need communications to execute. Uh, but as far as the communication between the principles of different agencies, uh, the communication between us and FEMA, FEMA and the hospitals in New York, FEMA and Mayor Giuliani, who was up in New York, those um, those executives, if you will, between the agencies had a real tough time. There was terrible communication between the firemen and the police officers in, in Manhattan as well. And that really was the biggest investment made. It was aimed in uh, command and control and communications, getting more satellites, better phones, better procedures in place so that we can all speak to one another in times of crisis. Are we safer today? You know, we're, we're absolutely... It, you know, it's a yes and no answer. But in, uh, I want to say we are safer today. The, the, really, the people that we have in the front lines are of your country and ours, you know, our CIA, our FBI, our police force, the Department of Homeland Security was created. Now we have a Northern Command uh, to work in conjunction with our NORAD command. Uh, the FAA is completely, has a hotline called Domestic Events Network that's automatically always an open line between the military. Uh, we are leaning forward. We're deployed. We've been in two wars in nine years. I think we're taking the fight to them. And I think as a result of the vigilance of our countries and the people on the front lines, we are safer today. But our enemies obviously are, are smart and resilient themselves, and we have to just stay in the fight and stay forward of them to prevent another 9-11 from happening. Folks, our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling, the book 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover, get this book, get a lot of these books, hand them out, because this is a story that has to resonate not only today, but in future generations as well, and none better than somebody who was right there. I've always considered people south of the border, Americans, more than just neighbors. They're family, folks. We're family. For some reason, we're tied together. And I think that reason is to achieve mutual respect and show the rest of the world that two countries can live side by side without shooting each other. And we resolve our problems, uh, and they are minute, through dialogue and as families do, we sit around with a cup of coffee and say, you know what, let's do this. And there's more we celebrate together than we don't. And that's what the beauty of this beautiful symbiotic relationship is. I have one last question for you, my friend. You are virtually at a podium right now. Imagine yourself speaking to every university student in Canada. This show is broadcast right across the university system from coast to coast to coast. There's three coasts in Canada. What would you say to them? I would say that we need them. We need every one of them. We need them to stay alert, to remain vigilant, to don't get complacent, to don't think the fight is over, um, to you know, respect our history, know that we're learning from it, but without them, without every member of North America leaning forward with their eyes and their ears, the, our enemies live amongst us. They're out there. They're smart. They're going to continue to try to attack us. But as long as we can count on the eyes and ears of every citizen of Canada and the United States to pay attention and spot something that's out of the ordinary and, and be brave enough to report it, we're going to continue to win. Here it is nine-plus years later. We haven't suffered one terrorist attack because of you and because of us leaning forward. 
stay in the fight. Don't give up on this. It's too important. Our freedoms are at risk. I want to thank you once again, not only for coming on the show today and staying late, but for your service that day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. It was a pleasure to be with you today. It certainly was for me also, my friend. All the very best to you and yours. Bye-bye. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time.